0: That I need to wait. So good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the uh, Serious uh, Security Seminar Series. Uh, so today is my uh, great pleasure to introduce Dr. Ariel uh, Freeman from uh, University of Chicago. Uh, Ari is a uh, assistant professor of computer science at the uh, Chicago. Uh, his uh, research lies at the intersection of computer security and distributed systems. He is presently uh, focused on uh, finding new ways to protect the security and privacy of users of cloud hosted services. His interests also include software and network security, data privacy, anonymity, and electronic voting, as well as the interaction between computer security, law, and public policy. Previously, he was a postdoc researcher at the CIS department at the University of Pennsylvania and he received his PhD in computer science from Princeton University in 2012.
1: Ari? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, So good afternoon. Um, As you said, I'm Ari Feldman, and I'll be talking about verifying computations with and without private state, and I'll get to what that is uh, later on. And the material in this talk is based on joint work um, with uh, professors and students um, at uh, the University of Texas uh, at Austin, as well as University of Pennsylvania. So um, as computing permeates uh, ever more aspects of society, we increasingly participate in complex systems where we rely on computation performed by others. So this includes cloud services, that are pr- pretty familiar like Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, um, the various uh, Google services and so on. It also, uh, it also includes um, Internet of Things devices, these so-called uh, Internet of Things devices which include uh, the thing on the uh, left is a smart meter, um, these devices that track how we drive to decide how much we should be billed for auto insurance, um, navigation devices like um, GPS navigation devices. Um, And another, um, perhaps less recognized uh, example of relying on the computation done by others is research studies, uh, often based on uh, common data sets, such as those from the US Census Bureau or those um, from from other data repositories like IDASH, which is a, a repository of biomedical data at UCSD. Um, so we rely on computation by a lot of different parties and these parties may not have the same interests that we do. Um, sometimes their interests are even at odds with us and so um, this leads to a number of problems. So it's well known that this leads to privacy problems. A lot of people have, have talked about this, this has gotten a lot of attention. Um, you know. There have been breaches by external attackers to cloud services. There have been changes in privacy policies of the various entities that we interact with and who hold our data, you know, potentially using our data in ways that we didn't expect. Uh, There's the possibility of government pressure and surveillance even. Um, There's also the risk uh, of accidental leaks due to bugs um, or even de-anonymization of the results of release data. Um, so I'm not going to talk that much about um, the, most of these threats to privacy except for um, accidental leaks. Um, however, I have worked on them in the past. What I will be talking about mainly today are sort of another class of problems that arise when we rely on computation done by others, and that is threats to the integrity of our data and the computations that are performed on it by these other parties who we rely on. Um, And the reality is that these computations can fail in Byzantine ways, leading to arbitrarily corrupt results. And these faults could be malicious. These third parties might have the incentive to simply um, behave incorrectly, deviate from correct execution, but of course these faults could also be non-malicious. They could be a result of corrupt inputs, they could be a result of misconfiguration, of software bugs. or, har- or hardware faults, and um, right now I argue that the main tools that we that we use to mitigate these are mostly sort of non-technical they're legal or market-based so we have laws we have government regulations on the handling of data we have court decisions and then we have promises made by these various entities privacy policies uh, service level agreements and so forth but i'd argue that these non-technical methods aren't enough Um, And in particular, they aren't enough for dealing with problems of integrity. And the reason um, is because in many cases, misbehavior by these parties is very hard to detect. And if you don't even know that the parties are misbehaving, either intentionally or not, um, these t- non-technical methods can't work well. Um, you can't really sort of have an enforcement mechanism if you don't even know that things are going wrong. So for example, if you outsource a computation on a large amount of data you know, that may take hours, this computation, and then get back a result, um, how do you know that you know, this was act- the result was actually computed correctly? Um, You know, so that you would be able to enforce some kind of, uh, you know, legal mechanism or some kind of uh, contract or something like that. And so as an alternative, one of the main things that I work on is the idea of designing systems for verifiability. That is assuming that system participants are untrusted and providing the participants with enough information to check that um, others are executing correctly rather than simply relying on their promises. And one of the other things that um, I'll be talking about today that is nice about designing systems for verifiability is that it opens the door for new applications such as that this verification can be done in zero knowledge, something that wasn't possible before, which is which means that you could verify someone else's behavior even if you didn't necessarily know the inputs to the computation that they performed. Um, and I also want to note that this this. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about, this method of verifying computations, is different from program verification. So, program verification is concerned with determining whether a particular um, program matches a specification. Whereas, what I'll be talking about um, today is, given that you um, n- given that you have some code, and given that assuming that you know what it does, if you give it to someone else, can you verify that they have executed that code correctly? And so I'll be talking about two systems in this vein that that I've been part of, that I've worked on with my collaborators. The first is called Pantry, which is um, a system for outsourcing computations and verifying the results, verifying that some other party who you outsource the computation to executed it correctly. That is sometimes practical, and I'll get to what what I mean by that. And the other system I'll be talking about is called VerDP, um, which was at EuroSys this year, um, which is about how you do verifiable and privacy-preserving data analysis, such as um, in the case of a research study. You wanna convince others that the results of your research study Um, are correct. Um, So while still preserving privacy. So let's start with Pantry. So the goal of Pantry is to be able to outsource computation to an untrusted provider running a set of untrusted servers. So this is you know like the Amazon EC2 style case Um, and there are a couple of goals that we had for Pantry. The first is that we wanted it to be practical, um, at least you know for some uses, and so one of the most basic uh, standards of practicality for outsourced computation is that it's worthwhile for the client. That is, that it's actually cheaper for the client to ask someone else to do the work than to do it themselves, because obviously if you don't even meet that bar, um, then unless you're, you're adding some other feature like zero knowledge, there really isn't any reason to do it. Um, The other thing is we wanted to support realistic applications such as MapReduce computations and and database computations. Um, And finally we wanted the system to be designed for verifiability. We wanted it to be efficient for users of these services to be able to efficiently verify um, computation results. So given this problem domain there are a number of possible approaches that might come to mind. The first is to sort of audit random samples of the computation results. Maybe you sort of re-execute the computation on on sort of portions of the input or or parts of the computation. But it's hard to catch small errors without doing a lot of auditing um, if you just audit random samples. It's kind of a needle in the haystack problem. Another uh, alternative is to kind of do a BFT style design and run multiple replicas. Uh, of the computation, but this assumes that the faults are uncorrelated. Another approach um, would be to take advantage of trusted hardware and use remote attestation to have the trusted hardware attest to the fact that some particular uh, code is running on the remote system. Um, But of course that requires an additional assumption. And you know, you can also create special purpose protocols, which may be efficient um, they may even be more efficient than general purpose verifiable computation, but they 're difficult to create and to prove correct um, and so what we want is something that sort of covers the broadest possible set of programs that we can that we can conceivably outsource and so we want something that 's general purpose and we want something that has unconditional guarantees in the sense that we only rely on, let's say, cryptographic assumptions rather than assumptions that, for example, the remote party runs some piece of trusted hardware. So in theory, we know how to do this. We can just use probabilistically checkable proofs. Um, And there are PCP-based argument systems where a client has some input x and some function f that they want to outsource and they send those things to a server and the server responds with a result y which is purportedly equal to um, f of x as well as a proof pi that that is indeed the case. So in principle we could do this and in fact the PCP's theorem states that the client um, only needs to inspect this proof in a constant number of locations regardless of the computation. Unfortunately just simply applying this to the problem doesn't work so well um, in practice. The sort of traditional as in you know maybe Prior to the past five years, PCP-based systems are really slow, and I mean really slow, so for example, verifying the result of a 500 by 500 matrix multiply would take more than something like 500 trillion CPU years. Um, Fortunately, within the past five years, there have been a number of advances in this area of verifiable computation that have led to many orders of magnitude of cost reduction and have have yielded built systems that, for example, have compilers that compile high-level languages like C into um, representations that are amenable to um, doing this kind of proof-based verifiable computation. And a number of different groups have worked on this problem and uh, the system that I'm going to discuss, Pantry, um, is based on two of them, um, uh, Zatar and Pinocchio. So what does, um, what does Pantry do? Well, there's another problem with PCP-based systems, um, with prior PCP P-based systems, and that is that they were stateless. That is that whenever you wanted to outsource a computation you had to send all of the input from the client to the server along with your function, and the output had to be sent, all of the output had to be sent back to the client, which is obviously sort of not a practical situation for the sort of outsourced Computations on, on sort of large data sets that we're hoping to be able to do, um, such as um, you know MapReduce uh, uh, processes as well as you know database queries and that sort of thing. Um, it's really impractical to you know pay that kind of network cost. So you know as a result you know, we need to do something more. And so what Pantry does is combine recent advances in verifiable computation with untrusted server storage. So what it does is that it it gives the server access to some untrusted storage, some, some storage that the client does not need to trust. And then the proof of correct computation that the server returns to the client not only states that the function was evaluated correctly but that all reads and writes to this untrusted storage were done correctly. So all of the reads actually fetched data that was really there in the untrusted storage and all writes actually wrote the correct values uh, correctly computed by F back to the storage, so that for example, if a subsequent uh, computation accessed it, um, you could actually say something um, as the client about what that what that storage contained. So to explain how this works, I just want to provide some background um, about uh, the about verifying a computation um, and in particular the way that Zatar and Pinocchio work. So this Uh, process of verifying a computation basically proceeds in three steps. First, the client compiles the program uh, to a circuit uh, representation which implements a series of algebraic constraints. There's basically sort of, you can think about it as a system of equations where each equation corresponds to one gate in the circuit. Then, um, that sort of circ- that compiled representation is sent to the server and the server finds a satisfying assignment to these constraints that is um, finds an assignment to all of the variables um, all of the variables in those equations to make them all hold simultaneously and then finally the server proves that it knows this satisfying assignment to the client so let me explain how these three steps work in, in more detail so the first is actually making and satisfying these constraints. So for any, um, for any program written in a high-level language, um, basically each program construct is converted into a series of constraints. So suppose we had this simple program, add5, um, which simply takes an input x as a parameter, adds 5 to it, and um, returns the value. Um, So, you can compile these into these two uh, constraints um, on the right over there, and these constraints are chosen by the compiler so that they are satisfiable if and only if the output is correct given the input x. Um, And so, basically, the compiler for each potential uh, program construct um, creates an equivalent set of constraints. So, suppose you had an input X, well then if the server computes correctly and outputs uh, Y equals 9, it's possible to satisfy both of these constraints simultaneously. But suppose that the server claims that the output Y is 10, then it's not possible to satisfy these constraints and so therefore um, finding an assignment is tantamount to correct execution. it's only possible to find a a satisfying assignment if and only if um, the program was executed correctly. And this can be done for more complex uh, program constructions. So you you can do this um, for branches and for inequalities and for loops and so on. Um, So for example, if you had this not equal um, condition, you can represent it as the two constraints um, on the bottom left. And basically, you can see that if x1 equals x2 um, then you have to set y equals 0 in order to satisfy the first constraint. Whereas if x1 is not equal to x2 then you have to um, set y equal to 1 in order to satisfy the second constraint. And so these two constraints, when taken together, make sure um, that the result of the not equal operation um, is actually correct. So once this satisfying assignment is found, the server needs to prove to the client that it's actually, that it's actually really done this. So the simplest thing you could imagine it doing is simply um, sending over as the proof the list of assignments, uh, uh, values assigned to all of the sort of intermediate variables of all of these constraints. Um, but this is, But verifying this is actually as expensive as doing the computation um, over again, because you essentially have a, a number of constraints that's linear in the size of the computation, and you have to plug in all these values and basically re-evaluate it, so that isn't going to work. So instead, what these protocols do is they convert the satisfying assignment into um, at least many of these um, Including uh, Zatar and Pinocchio, they convert um, this, the assignment, the satisfying assignment, into a QAP, a uh, quadratic arithmetic <coughs> program, which is basically a polynomial with an error detection property. and then the client can kind of query this polynomial, um, eva- you know ask the server to evaluate this polynomial at, uh, at a random location, and the response is uh, is sufficient um, to prove that the server does in fact know a satisfying assignment um, to all of the constraints without actually having to return them all. So um, these systems have the property that constructing this query um, is expensive. Um, there is some setup phase. Um, Depending on the system, Um, for example, Zatar and Pinocchio are somewhat different, but they both have a setup phase that's roughly linear in the size of of the computation. Fortunately, this cost uh, of setting up uh, can be sort of um, amortized over multiple invocations of the same uh, computation over multiple inputs. the client can provide multiple inputs and get back multiple outputs along with multiple proofs and indeed these can be run in parallel which will be very good for certain applications like MapReduce. So what about the issue of verifying uh, reads and writes to untrusted storage? So in Pantry the sort of naive way of doing this would be to treat the untrusted storage as kind of a big switch statement. Um, where there is a variable um, associated with each position in the storage and, let's say, a load from storage would just be sort of a, a switch statement over all of the storage. Um, but this really isn't any good. It's, it's linear. Each, each load operation, for example, would, be, would require a linear amount of work in the, in the entirety of, of the storage. So instead, uh, what Pantry does is... Um, structures the untrusted storage as a block store where essentially blocks of data of arbitrary size are named by the hashes of their contents. And then it augments C with two new uh, operations. The first, get block, works by giving an input digester hash D, returns a data block B, which has the invariant that the hash of that block B has to equal um, the input hash. It also augments um, C with a put block operation, which um, takes a block B at input and returns a digest, a hash D' that, has, that preserves the invariant that that digest that's returned has to um, be equal to the hash of the supplied data, which is then stored in the untrusted block store. So how do you verify these operations? Well. Um, Suppose you had this example where um, there's an input hash D, and then um, the program performs the get block operation to get the block corresponding to that digest, um, treats that block as an integer, increments it by one, and then stores it in Y and returns the result. So this is compiled to a set of constraints which roughly have this structure. So the last constraint is um, one that you'd recognize that just makes sure that the increment was done correctly. Um, But what of the rest of the constraints? The rest of the constraints essentially implement the hash function in in, in the form of constraints and then compare the result of the hash function with the input uh, digest D. So the only way to satisfy those constraints is for the hash to be computed correctly. And if the hash is a, cl- a good hash function, it's a collision resistant hash function, then this also um, can convince um, the, the client that the correct value was fetched. So you're essentially outsourcing the check that the correct value was retrieved in this one instance to the untrusted server and rely on the fact that the check has to be um, computed correctly because it's part of a verifiable computation. So given these tools, um, what can you do? Um, it turns out that with just C and get block and put block, you can implement verifiable MapReduce. And so the way that works is um, the client um, outsources a particular map function to a set of mappers run by the untrusted provider, and um, it also provides Um, some input hashes of the particular blocks of data that the various mappers are going to work on along with a a, a query which is going to be used as part of the uh, the proof. um, It's going to be used by the uh, the server to generate proofs. So what what does the mapper actually do? Well, it calls get, each mapper basically calls get block on the input um, hash to get the block of data verifiably. Um, then the map function is, um, runs on it um, and it produces some output, and then for each of the reducers, um, a new block is, um, play, is written to untrusted storage, and the digest of that block is actually, um, is actually returned to the client along with the proof of the correct execution of each of the the mappers. Then, in the reduce phase, the client turns around and sends those interim hashes of the results of the map phase to the reducer nodes, along with a reduce function and a query, and um, the reducers get the necessary blocks, run the reducer, uh, run the reduce function, and then outputs the result as another block and returns um, the digest of those blocks along with a correct uh, along with a proof of correctness of the reduce phase and so what you basically have here is that all of the data never needed to be stored with the client the client only ever saw small proofs and hashes and yet can be convinced that this data parallel computation was actually done correctly over this remote database, um, with just C and get block and put block. Pantry can also do other things. You can build verifiable data structures. You can imagine that um, verifiable blocks contain the hashes of other verifiable blocks, which allows you to build things like um, verifiable tree-based data structures and indices and that sort of thing. Um, You can can represent queries like, for example, in, in, in um, one example of something we did is we um, used a subset of SQL um, and we compiled that into a verifiable program and so you could potentially have a, a relational database with indices and query processing um, all implemented with C and get block and put block and be able to verify the results. Um, however, beyond that, you can also do something that you can't normally do. Um, and that is zero-knowledge verification. So, in that case, um, not only is the storage not in the possession of the client, but the client is not actually allowed to see it. The only thing that the client has access to is a commitment to the contents of the storage. And that commitment, that cryptographic commitment, binds the server to specific values in the storage while still hiding its contents from the client. So, um, and this will be useful in, in the next system that I'll, that I'll discuss. But what's really interesting about that is that the, the client can be convinced um, that, the, that this potentially complex computation was done correctly without actually needing to know what the data is. So how practical is all of this? Well, there's good news and bad news. Um, the bad news is that the server overhead as compared to unverified execution um, is pretty high. Um, Even though it's been improved by, you know, let's say 20 orders of magnitude, it's still several orders of magnitude more expensive. You also have this client setup cost, um, which can be amortized in certain cases, um, but it's also an obstacle. And finally, in pantry at least, um, the programming model is limited because essentially the entire computation has to be static. Loop bounds, array sizes, pointers, and so forth. Although recent work has Um, started to lift this uh, restriction basically by having the compiled circuit uh, represent more of the machine, you know, the program counter and so forth. However, there is good news. Um, Some MapReduce uh, applications are practical today in the sense that outsourcing is worthwhile for the client. Um, C and get block and put block are pretty expressive and you also get uh, zero knowledge verification. So you get capabilities um, that weren't previously possible. So in summary, Pantry um, provides sometimes practical verifiable outsourced computation um, by combining untrusted server storage with verifiable computation, yielding realistic applications. And it's also nice that it's unconditional and general purpose um, in the sense that it only relies on cryptographic assumptions. So now I'm going to move on to talking about um, the second um, system that, uh, that, that's in this area um, and that's uh, VerDP. So the setting of VerDP is um, that of verifying research results. So in many cases you have some data curator, uh, we'll call it, like the US Census Bureau, which has some standard data set. Um, let's say it's about uh, dog ownership and Then researchers come along and want to perform a query over this data set and they want to publish the results to some readers. Um, So, you know, suppose the researchers do their study and they say the average number of dogs that people own is 10 per person. So, this seems a bit off. um, And indeed mistakes and even fraud do happen in the results of research studies. So what do we do about this? Well, the traditional approach is reproducibility. Um, somebody else, let's say, takes the data set, um, they perform the same query over it, they perform the same kind of data analysis, they try to repeat it, and they see whether the results match the published results. Unfortunately, sensitive data poses a problem. So suppose that the database is not about um, dog ownership, but is actually about something more sensitive, like uh, you know, medical data. Then this raises two challenges. The first is that the result itself of the computation, we know this, the result itself can leak information, um, such as the the famous Netflix prize uh, database uh, de-anonymization. The second problem is that the fact that um, the distribution of this database is limited limits reproducibility. Um, So there's this kind of conflict between privacy and verifiability um, in, the, in, in the sort of uh, verification of the results of research studies conducted over sensitive data. So what about using uh, differential privacy? So to deal with this first challenge, um, often uh, what, 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 what is uh, an approach that has been proposed is to use differential privacy, which basically, um, which basically involves adding some noise uh, to the result that is published so that Um, the privacy of no individual in the database is compromised. And this is good because it provides um, mathematical privacy guarantees. It provides a methodology for figuring out how much noise you have to add to preserve the privacy of of database uh, participants. However, it actually makes reproducibility even harder because Suppose that the researcher wanted to make the result some some particular value, like 2.5. Um, she could publish this result, um, and then even if you had access to this sensitive database, you couldn't actually be sure uh, whether or not um, the researcher uh, was lying, because the researcher could always claim um, sort of basically plausible, deniab- have plausible deniability, and claim that effectively, you know, the, the the sort of unexpected result is simply a result of of the particular cho- uh, the particular choice of random noise that was drawn for, from some uh, distribution. Um, they could blame it on the noise that they had it to, that they had to add. So, um, to overcome the problem with this approach. Um, we propose combining differential privacy with uh, zero knowledge verifiable computation of the kind that I talked about earlier. Um, And so, for example, the researcher does not choose the noise, so they can't lie about the noise. And then in addition to publishing a paper, they also prove the result using Pantry. Um, They publish their, their query constraints along with a proof of correct execution of that particular query over the data. And then anybody who then reads um, this paper can get the proof and check that the query was executed correctly, even though they don't have access to the underlying uh, data. So there are a couple of problems with this. The first is that if these constraints represent a circuit, um, you can't just sort of naively take sort of trace the execution of the query that um, the researcher wanted to do, convert it to a circuit and then generate a proof, because the very structure of the circuit could leak information about the database, if it, if it depends on, on the database. The second problem is that um, pantry is really only efficient, can really only break even in data parallel computations, like the MapReduce example I talked about earlier, um, when you can amortize the cost of that setup um, you know over, over sort of um, multiple invocations of, of the same uh, program. And so um, basically that's, that's what uh, VerDP, our system, does. It combines privacy and verifiability by combining differential privacy and zero-knowledge verifiable computation. Um, and, um, but you know there's some challenges in actually making this work correctly. So the first challenge um, is that you have to ensure that the results of computations performed in the system are differentially private and as we'll see we use a domain specific query language for expressing queries. The second problem is that we need to achieve structural privacy that is we need the generation of circuits or equivalently constraints to be data independent, to not depend on the database so that it doesn't you know the structure of the computation doesn't doesn't in any way leak information about individuals. And the third is that we need efficient execution, which means we need a highly parallelizable runtime. So what about the first question, um, ensuring uh, differential privacy? Well, so there's this existing language called Fuzz, um, and it is a language for expressing queries, um, and it has a type system such that if the program type checks, then the result of the query um, um, can be known to be differentially private. So suppose that you had um, you, suppose you had a database and you wanted to know how many people are over 40 so you could express it um, in fuzz uh, with this code um, where, you are basically, um, where you basically so apply a particular predicate to each row of the database in this case the sort of over 40 uh, predicate on the right um, Then you split uh, the database um, based on whether or not that predicate is true or false, and finally you count um, one of the two um, halves of the database, or one of the two um, portions of the database, and that's how you get your result. And then you add some noise um, to ensure that it's differentially private, and basically the sort of type system and runtime sort of keep track of the sensitivity um, of the computation so that um, you know how how much noise needs to be added at the end. So this is all well and good. The problem of course is that if you convert this particular sort of pipeline to a circuit, um, it could leak information about the particular underlying data because as you can see, you know, the sizes of the sort of two portions uh, after the split um, you know, are different, and so if you had sort of the number of gates in your circuit depend on that, um, that would leak information about, um, about the database. So, and there are other examples of this, you know, if you had data dependent loops uh, or recursion, um, this could also leak information about, about the database. So, to achieve structural privacy, to prevent the structure of the circuit from leaking stuff, um, we use fixed-size intermediate results, um, static loop bounds, and recursion depth, and statically compiled predicates. And if you design the, uh, if you modify the language in the way that we described, um, then you can actually prove um, that indeed structural privacy is preserved. The next question um, is efficiency, and so, you know, as we talked about with Pantry. Um, The expensive part is the proof setup, which has to be done once, um, for example, by the curator, um, and proof generation, um, which has to be done by the researcher and has to be done basically once per execution of a particular um, circuit, and is several orders of magnitude um, more expensive than uh, unverified execution whereas what is cheap and independent of the circuit size is the verification of the proofs of correctness so that can be done in in milliseconds and so we have to manage the cost of of the sort of expensive part of pantry so just simply taking the query we want to do over the database and converting it into a single giant circuit is really far too expensive it will overwhelm the resources of of an individual uh, server So we have to exploit data parallelism in some way, and so what's nice about um, this particular language, uh, VFuzz, is it has the property that the predicate is applied essentially to each row of the database individually, and so what you can do is you can essentially divide each phase of this computation, um, each phase of this pipeline, into multiple tiles that are then sharded over um, multiple um, machines. So all computations in this language basically have three phases. They have a, a sort of, um, they have the application of the, of the predicate to each row of the database and you can sort of um, apply it to chunks of the database. Um, then um, the results of these predicates are um, aggregated in a count phase and finally noise is added at the end and so each of these shards can be placed on a different uh, machine it's basically an embarrassingly parallel problem which is really good because the complexity of pantry um, really depends on the circuit size and so as a result you only need to generate um, a circuit um, that is sort of linear in the size of one of these chunks of the database rather than the entire database itself. It also allows the cost of sort of setting up, um, the, pro- the, the, setting up the proof um, to be amortized over all of the tiles, all of the, execu- all of the parallel executions of, of um, the smaller circuit that, let's say, um, applies to different tiles of the computation. Now, um, what about passing values between phases? So now that, um, now that um, we're actually dealing with multiple computations, some executed as phases, some, um, some uh, executed in parallel, we need a way to sort of connect uh, the data between them. And so effectively, um, there are a series of cryptographic commitments. Each phase generates a set of commitments um, to the remotely stored data which the um, the readers of the paper never get to see um, and then these commitments are used um, to sort of bind the, the um, researchers um, to, the, to, to particular data as the input to the next phase. So the last thing I want to talk about is how well this works in terms of uh, its efficiency and there are a number of questions that you can ask. The efficiency of proof generation, the efficiency of proof verification, um, the scalability of the system to sort of larger databases Um, and so these are the things that I'm going to be talking about now. Um, In the paper we also talk about the efficiency of proof setup as well as uh, some micro benchmarks and so in order to figure out how well this actually works, um, we did a couple of different queries, um, which are which are sort of common in the differentially in the differential privacy literature, and um, we outsourced these computations um, to a bunch of EC2 instances. We used thirty-two uh, EC2 instances with a lot of RAM, and in particular, they they had some fancy NVIDIA GPUs, which can be used to accelerate the cryptography of of the. Um, verifiable computation system. Um, One thing that's notable, though, is despite the sort of hefty specs of these machines, they only cost about two dollars per instance per hour. So, um, to evaluate this, um, for proof generation, um, we um, estimated the time that it would take for the prover to run on various queries and various sizes of input databases. Um, and as you can see, um, you know, even with you know this given level of parallelism, you know, it takes a few hours, and only needs to be done basically once before publication. Like it's not like when you're sort of playing with the data, figuring out exactly what query you you have to do. You need to actually do this. Um, you really only need to do it once before publication. And um, experiments like we we sort of actually did some experiments to verify our cost model Um, these are represented by those dots um, which and our um, our actual results were within 3.3 percent of our of our projections and these experiments cost 64 and 128 dollars respectively now what about proof verification so proof verification is very fast each proof um, and so now there are multiple proofs because of th- these different tiles but each proof is only 288 bytes and takes um, milliseconds to verify so in all of our examples um, basically it only took um, you know about you know even for our sort of um, most intensive example only took uh, less than three and a half seconds um, to verify yeah, to verify the results so finally um, we were interested in the scalability of proof generation. So, you know, if you wanted to pay more for, let's say, more instances, could you do better? And the answer is that proof generation is actually highly scalable. The work that you actually need to do to sort of prove that you've done a research study correctly scales very well um, with the number of with the number of rows, so for example, um, if you had a thousand machines um, and a two million row database, it would take about a hundred minutes um, to generate to generate uh, a proof. Um, so that you know, at a cost of sort of two dollars per instance per hour, and considering that it only has to be done once, um, it's probably a small part of the research budget. You know, this sort of last step of of publishing. Uh, the proof and so we believe that you know you could actually do this um, in a lot of cases Um, and so to sum things up um, you know VerDP enables this interesting combination of privacy and verifiability by combining differential privacy with the verifiable uh, computation machinery um, that I talked about um, in the first half of the talk and um, VFUS queries that type check, it provides this nice um, query language that are provably uh, differentially private and provably uh, structurally private. Um, And the system is in fact, um, you know, scalable and, you know, relatively affordable. You know, it's it's a relatively small percentage of, of the sort of research budget that you would have. And we believe that you could do similar things in other applications, like for example, suppose um, that you had one of these um, devices attached to your car um, that that sort of tracked your driving habits, Um, but you didn't want to reveal, you know, that sort of detailed sensitive data about how you drive or where you drive um, to the insurance company. So, what you could imagine happening is that um, your car would would, would sort of provide uh, sensitive driving data to this um, to this device and the insurance company would provide its billing formula and then the device would return uh, differentially private statistics about about your driving along with a proof that the billing formula was actually correctly applied. So the final answer you get about um, let's say you know how much you should pay um, is actually correct. So to conclude I'd argue that um, It's possible to build general purpose systems designed for verifiability. And I think it's necessary that we do this because we are increasingly relying on computation done by others. And um, legal and market-based enforcement, I'd argue, um, are not enough on their own. And indeed, um, these sorts of mechanisms can complement them because essentially they provide evidence whether or not um, these third parties are actually doing what they say they do. Um, it also enables the possibility of new applications um, that might not have been previously possible due to the risks. Um, the ability to, for example, prove things about, um, prove things about databases that you're not allowed to see um, is, is, sort of a very, is sort of a very interesting um, capability. And so um, that's all and I hope we have a little bit of time for questions and thanks for listening and thanks for inviting me.
0: Have you thought about uh, uh, further optimizing the uh, the the execution performance of these verification tasks, for example, by exploiting some of the parallelism that is intrinsic in the uh, in the verification to make it even more
1: efficient? So to speed up proof verification. That's right. Yeah. Um, so we I haven't looked at that. I mean, it might it might be possible to do it. I mean, so you know, one of the issues is that like. Um, each of the, you know, even though the circuit is the same, the inputs are different, and right. so, you know, um, um, so so certain aspects of the proof are going to be different. I mean, one of the things about the proof is that it's already so small right. because it's already kind of independent of of a lot of the. It's it's already independent of a lot of the computation. Um, you know, there's already so much that the client doesn't uh, doesn't already know. So I'm not. I'm not sure what approach you would take, but there might be something you can do. Certainly on the server end of things, there have already been improvements since we we built the system. For example, one of the most expensive aspects of of VerDP is that each phase has to commit to the results of the phase, and then the next phase, each sort of tile of the next phase has to decommit Mm. um, so as to prove that, you know, that phase is using the same data as the preceding phase. Um, and so what we did um, in, in VerDP is we actually, um, we actually implemented the cryptographic commitment in C and compiled that to a verifiable computation. But if you specialize the, the proof machinery, as, as a recent paper from earlier this year did, sort of building commitments into um, the, the proof machinery, you can actually do the process of kind of chaining multiple verifiable computations together much more efficiently. So like, um, that would actually lop off a big a big chunk of the cost um, of the system that, that I just talked about. So, uh, very interesting talk. I had two clarification questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Pantry, I did not understand what do you mean by this un- Server, we don't trust him for doing correct computation. And then you talked about untrusted storage. Mm-hmm. So I didn't understand the difference in terms of the assumption that you're making on the server as compared to the storage from the client's perspective. So from the, from the client's perspective, it actually doesn't matter um, you know, whose storage this is, like whether it's actually the same store, you know, whether, whether it's the same party um, who holds the storage, maybe it's just the same server um, who also has the storage. Um, you know, because effectively, all the, all the client cares about is that there is some continuity between, let's say, some initial commitment to what the initial state of the storage was and sort of all of the subsequent computations. So for example, you know that every value that was read from that database and subsequently used in the computation can actually be tied back to that initial um, initial commitment. And similarly, any writes that happened um, really did update the, the appropriate portions of that storage. Um, you can even have, um, as, as, as VerDP does, um, the system output a new updated commitment that the client can actually trust. So the client actually doesn't need to uh, care, um, you know, who holds the storage. They just know that, um, you know, um, all sorts of sort of um, corruption might have happened in the storage, um, but the, the, the program verifies the, the contents of any, of, of any reads that, that, are, that are then used um, in, in the computation. But from the server's perspective, this, stor- this storage could actually not even be, you know, be run by even somebody else. You know, you could imagine some, you know, block store so- storage um, run by some other party, and all the server does is sort of do regular um, get and put operations on that block store. Um, and as long as, um, as long as that block store, um, you know, continues to service requests, um, you know, um, it will work and the client will be able to actually take care of making sure that um, the contents is, is correct because essentially all of the checks are built into the, the verifiable program. Okay. Uh, and the second thing was, it's also short, but that's regarding VerDB so here the model is there are all these there is a database i as a reader or somebody who is looking at the answer has no idea about what is the database so Uh, how can I be sure that you're taking care of all the validity and integrity, that all the records are used by computation and stuff like that? Well, so that's why I think that the sort of most realistic um, setting for using something like this is where there is a data curator with some standard data set, like the Census Bureau um, or one of these biomedical um, data repositories, where um, essentially um, the data was collected let's say, by someone other than the researchers. So they can't, let's say, cherry pick the data set in order to get the results that they want. Um, and so then, um, you could imagine that this data set was collected in advance of the researchers asking to do the study. Um, a public commitment was published to it. You know, Long beforehand, um, You know, the, the, the sort of data set was not chosen um, was not chosen um, with with that particular query in mind, and um, you know, multiple studies could be done on it. So I think that that's a way to that that's a that's a potential way to deal with that problem. And then the program itself, you know, could you know be structured so that it's clear that um, it actually sort of touches every record, and those are tied back to that that commitment. Okay. All
0: right. So in the interest of time, let's. Uh Keep the other questions offline and let's thank Ari one more time.